Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. I am Rick Thomas. I am glad that you are here. The title of this presentation is Physical Intimacy. I want to talk about the physical relationship between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage. The subtitle is Obstacles, Origins, and Opportunities. I want to work through the obstacles in physical intimacy as well as origins. I'm speaking of the problems that came at the fall of humanity. And then, of course, I want to encourage you at the end by giving you some opportunities in a significant call to action that I trust will in, not just encourage you, but it will give you a practical path forward conversationally so that you can work through whatever issues that may be between man and a woman if there are issues when it comes to physical intimacy. Let's get right into it. The litmus test in any marriage is physical or sexual intimacy. It's one of the quickest indicators that reveal how a couple is doing in, the, in their marriage. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because it is the most physical and intimate thing that they will do together. Physical intimacy is different from just talking to each other or dating or dinner or a movie. Sexual relationship requires more. It demands more from two people. You can talk to each other and be great friends, but yet you can withhold yourself from the person that you're talking to. You can hide in plain sight, not revealing all of your weaknesses and all of your vulnerabilities. Biblical intimacy is different from that. It's two people who are completely vulnerable, completely weak, completely other-centered, giving themselves to the other person. Again, talking conversationally. A couple could be married for 55 years, and they could present themselves as doing remarkably well out in the public space, and people would look at that couple and think that this is the couple, this is the paragon, these are the people that we want to imitate, and they never know that really there is something that is not quite right with the marriage. Well, the way to find that out is the litmus test. It is sexual intimacy. Of course, dating and dinner and movie are wonderful activities, but you can withhold yourself or not fully commit yourself to the relationship in any of those activities. And so if you want to know how a couple is doing at the very core of their being with each other, then getting into their, their physical relationship would be how you would identify whatever is broken or whatever may be wrong. Now, I am not recommending that you have these conversations or that you be this intrusive. But if you do have relationships that are on this level where you can talk with this kind of transparency in an appropriate way, it would be a good conversation to have. Now, if a marriage, if a couple are having problems in their relationship and the litmus test reveals that there is something wrong, then I would appeal to this couple to find someone who can help to walk them through whatever the complications are in their marriage. 
But the point stands firm. The litmus test, sexual intimacy, is one of the quickest indicators that reveal how a couple is doing in their marriage. Now, the reason for that is because there are obstacles. There are things that come between the man and the woman that keep them from enjoying the purest form of biblical intimacy. I cannot give you an exhaustive list of the obstacles in a short webinar, but I do want to identify some of the more common ones in the relationship. For example, pretending. Pretending with each other is a common obstacle that keeps a man and a woman from fully enjoying each other. It is easy to pretend. We can pretend with God. We can pretend with each other. We can pretend with our friends. It can become a habit. It can become a safety valve or a measure that we employ to protect ourselves from being hurt, from being offended, from being vulnerable around other people. Many of you have heard me talk about this idea of our PR person, our public representative, that we have a representative of ourselves. It is that carefully crafted narrative that we carve out and of ourselves that we present to other people, hoping that others will like that person that we present to them because we're not sure that they will like the person that we know ourselves to be. And even in a marriage, two people could be presenting to each other public representations of themselves while continuing to hide from each other, even in the covenant. It would be an interesting conversation to have with your spouse, assuming that your marriage is at the level where you can have this kind of mature and adult conversation. Now, granted, when you enter into a marriage, you are not fully disclosed to the other person. The ideal marriage is the marriage that is incrementally revealing oneself to the other person over a period of years. Think about the dating relationship when you first meet your future marriage partner. Well, in the dating relationship, you don't know anything about them. And so there is an element of pretending or there is an element of just not knowing all there is to know with the other person. But as the dating relationship progresses, hopefully uh, both people within that context are willing to be more revealing appropriately as they disclose more about themselves. And so the question is really, are you leaning in toward pretending in your relationship, or are you leaning toward ever-increasing awareness so that the other person can know the real you? But the danger within a marriage is that we can get stuck on pretending and live in this attitude or this reality of hiding from each other. Now, if you're leaning into hiding and not revealing and you're not moving toward incremental revelation of each other to each other, then, well, you would have a problem within your marriage and ultimately you could not enjoy biblical intimacy. And so one of the obstacles in a relationship is a person who is choosing to pretend, whatever those reasons may be. 
Now, there could be valid reasons for pretending. For example, let me present another obstacle. For example, let's say that a man is always demanding sex from, from his wife, and so he is an authoritarian bully, maybe a harsh way to describe it, or he's definitely insensitive. He is not other-centered in his demeanor and his deportment, that he's really just thinking about himself, and so he is just demanding that his wife give him physical pleasure. Well, a person or a husband who is doing that, well, then there could be a valid reason for this wife to be uh, closed, to not be willing to be vulnerable uh, to her husband because of his insensitivity, his harshness, the way that he goes about thinking and demanding physical intimacy. And so that is one reason that they, or, or one situation where a wife would be valid in pretending because she, she wants to protect herself, which honestly makes sense when the husband is this insensitive. And of course, if this has happened in your marriage, this would be another occasion where you would want to receive help. Another obstacle would be a wife who disrespects her husband. And I mentioned a man who is demanding and a wife who is disrespecting. And the pretending aspect in point number one is because these are some of the more common obstacles when it comes to inhibiting what biblical intimacy could be. And that's why I'm presenting these obstacles to you, because they may be yours. And of course, I'm sure you can list other obstacles that would keep a man and a woman from fully enjoying each other in biblical intimacy. But here are three of them. Now, the reason all this happens to us is because we're fallen people. We are born in Adam. We're all cut from the same Adamic cloth, as Paul talked about in Romans 5.12, that we came into this world Adamic, and so we have a former manner of life that he talked about in Ephesians 4.22, and we see where all this began in Genesis 3.6 when they chose to unbelieve. And then the next verse, as you see here on this slide, is Genesis 3.7. It says this. There are two sentences here, and as you listen to these two sentences in verse number 7, there's a lot here, and I want to unpack these two sentences on the next slide. But here is what Genesis 3.7 says. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, starting in Genesis 3.6, and then here in 3.7, and then a few verses after this, you get a a broad and wide scope and an in-depth diagnostic of what's wrong with us and why we are set up not to enjoy biblical intimacy because of our fallenness. And so what I want to do is just to lay out, thinking about the origins of where it all began as far as our fallenness is concerned, 
I want to lay out six complicating elements that we see embedded in these early passages in Genesis where man and woman first fell. Of course, our biggest problem is unbelief. In Genesis 3.6, Adam and Eve chose to unbelieve, and when it comes to all of our spiritual problems, this is the core. There is nothing below unbelief. This is the rock bottom. And if you want to get to the origins, to the very rock bottom of what is wrong with an individual, spiritually speaking, ultimately you will come to this place of unbelief where they are not trusting God choosing to rely on themselves to accomplish whatever it is that they want to accomplish. Well, in this webinar, I'm talking about biblical intimacy, and if a person is operating with unbelief, then they're operating with self-sufficiency or self-reliance, meaning that they're going to do things their way and not God's way. And so unbelief is a staggering and a big issue with all of us, again, because we are fallen in Adam. Now, there are two kinds of unbelief. There is an unbelief pertaining to salvation, and then there is an unbelief pertaining to sanctification. Let's say that you are married to an unbeliever, an individual who has not been born again. He has not been regenerated. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespass, uh, you were dead in, in your sins, in your trespasses and sins. Well, a person who has not been born again, born from above, the light is not on. Spiritual things do not make sense to him, and so enjoying biblical intimacy is not possible because this person is dead. This person is wandering around in darkness. And so to be an unbeliever in a salvific sense would make it impossible to fully benefit and enjoy from biblical intimacy, and so that would be a problem, of course. But then again, you could have a believer, a person who has been regenerated, but they are operating in unbelief in a, sal- a, a sanctification sense, not a salvation sense. And so they are truly, genuinely born from above. But yet there are elements of darkness in their life. They are serving another master in an aspect like, say, pornography, for example, or just general selfishness, that they're truly not depending on the Lord and resting in Him. Born again, but but it is the unbelieving believer as a part of their life is not fully submitted to the Lord. In either case, where the person is not born again, unbelief, or the person is born again, and sin has captured them, according to Galatians 6 1, you have the unbelieving believer. In either case, it will inhibit and it will interfere with what true, genuine biblical intimacy could, could be and should be for a, a Christian couple. And so, going back to the origins, unbelief is a, a big deal and it's a biblical intimacy killer in the relationship. And of course, 
what Adam and Eve did, they, they sinned. And I've been talking about this with the, as I've described, unbelief. But what sin does is that it brings darkness in the soul. Darkness begins to inhabit the soul, to take up abode in the soul. And when darkness comes, you, you can't see well. You lose clarity. You lose perspective. Wisdom is diminished. And anytime sin is operating in the soul, whether it's through the dead person who is not saved or the Christian who is functioning in unbelief, at least in an aspect of his or her life, darkness has entered and that will inhibit what biblical intimacy could be. Another element of the fall of humanity is shame. And you saw this in Genesis 3-7 where they covered themselves with, with fig leaves. They realized that they were naked and they felt awkward all of a sudden. You see, prior to this, they could be fully unclothed. They could be fully naked and it was just not a thing. But because we are fallen, we have a sense of shame. I call this sense of shame an internal awkwardness where a person is not comfortable in their own skin. And people can struggle with shame for different reasons and in different ways. All of us struggle with it in that it came with the Adamic package. It is part of the Adamic cloth or the fabric from which we were all cut. But then there can also be complicated shame. Let's say that a person is born, they're born in Adam, they're born in shame, and then they live in a context, let's say, an authoritarian, mean-spirited, abusive dad. Well, that will complicate a pre-existing condition of shame. It will make their shame worse than it was just being born in Adam. And it is important for husbands and wives to realize that there are shaping influences that can happen to us, adverse shaping influences, I'm speaking specifically, that can complicate our pre-existing Adamic condition. And perhaps this is a conversation that some couples need to have. Maybe there's something that happened to your spouse that predates you, has nothing to do with you, but yet it happened to them. It complicated their Adamic shame to where their shame is more intensified and it makes biblical intimacy awkward. Shame is a big deal, and again, it's a part of our Adamic package. And of course, the temptation is to put on layers. They covered themselves to hide this internal awkwardness. And this is our temptation of how we want to live. Many people live behind fig leaves where they're peeking through the fig leaves of their lives because they don't want to be exposed. They don't want to be vulnerable. They don't live in the freedom and the transformative power of the gospel, they're still living like Adamic creatures. And this is why we would be tempted to carve out a, a carefully edited version of ourselves that we present to others while we continue to maintain our position behind our fig leaves. If you're married to someone who is tempted this way, 
then you want to get inside that and to help them, to mature them, to grow them out where they can come out from behind the fig leaves and live in the freedom and the power of the gospel. Now, one of the things that you don't want to do is you don't want to be one of those complicating factors to where you're insensitive, you're harsh, you're unkind, you're brutish, you're abusive, to where you tempt the person to further ensconce themselves behind leaves, their fig leaves, because that is their natural proclivity in Adam. And if that is their predisposition, you could really tempt them and motivate them to do what would come naturally to them, which is to hide. And of course, if this is part of how they function inside the marriage, it would be easy for them to to start lying. And not necessarily speaking overt lies, but just living in a deception, which is what pretending is. A husband or a wife could be hiding in plain sight of their spouse, which is a form of deception because they are afraid. They're unwilling. They will not become vulnerable because of complicating factors. And so they start lying, again, not overtly, but just by the secretive, covert lifestyle that they live in plain sight. And then finally, the sixth element that we see in the early stages of the fall of Adam and Eve, they ran from the Lord. This is another aspect of deception, of layers, of shame, of sin, of unbelief. It's just a natural progression that we we run from the solution. We run from the Lord. We run from each other. And one of the sadder things that you will see with Christian couples is that Couples can actually act out all six of these elements inside of their marriage, and nobody ever knows any different. And so you want to work through these. And again, if your marriage is mature enough to where you can have this conversation, you want to talk about how unbelief is or can be operative in your own heart and your marriage, as well as any sin that may be that has brought darkness into your soul or shame or the layering. How do you layer yourself to hide in plain sight, practically speaking? What deceptions, lies have you believed where you exchange the truth of God for a lie because you're trying to keep from being exposed or vulnerable or weak, and then hiding, running from the Lord, running from each other, and not just these things that you may be doing, but how could you be contributing to these things, complicating your spouse to where they would be tempted to act out in any of these ways? And so here is a clear diagnostic and analysis of our common temptations of being born in Adam. And now let's talk about obstacles that can lay on top of this pre-existing condition or conditions that I've just walked through, we can create complicating factors by how we interact with each other. And so I want to lay out some common obstacles that can complicate our Adamic tendencies 
And here are 10 of those, and this is not an exhaustive list. And as you look at the slide, they are listed as bitterness and anger and frustration and guilt and disrespect and unforgiveness, hurts, malice, insensitivity, and influences. And when I say influences, I'm talking about adverse shaping influences, things that have shaped us to be who we are, that make up a huge part of who we are and how we interact with with other people. And so influences are, are shaping or adverse shaping influences. Now, any of these ways of interacting with your spouse, it will take those six elements that we looked at on the previous slide, and it will exacerbate those. It will intensify those. And this is what I mean by complicating our Adamic or pre-existing Adamic condition, and we don't want to do that. And so if we are operating with any of these, uh, it will it will it will truly entangle a spouse and it will complicate a marriage. Let me give you a brief case study. I want to pull two of these things together just to give you a small case study of how two of these things can interact with each other to complicate a marriage. I'm going to take the last two, adverse shaping influences and insensitivity. Let's say, and I'll use the husband and wife, and let's say the wife, that she came from a family dynamic that uh, from an authoritarian, mean-spirited dad. And so she came into the world fallen, as we all do, Adamic, all of the tendencies that I mentioned in the previous slide. And so those are her temptations. And then she comes into the world, into a home with an authoritarian, mean-spirited dad. And so rather than him shepherding her and being a father to lead her out of her Adamic tendencies and into a new creation in Christ, he basically buries her. He, he makes her feel smaller and smaller and smaller by his meanness, his harshness, his crudeness, his passivity, his distance, uh, his way of basically just beating her down for, let's say, 20 years. And so that is her adverse shaping influence. And then she marries an individual, and so she comes into the relationship a little bit guarded, a little bit suspicious. She's looking for the other foot, the other shoe to drop, uh, that, that she lives in a protective way. And of course, it would be the husband's responsibility to, one, to discern these things, and then two, to activate a plan to untangle what her daddy did to her and what Adam did to her. But now let's say that the husband is insensitive, that he's unkind, he's not as brutish or abusive as her daddy was, but it, does, it won't take a lot. It doesn't take a, a lot, not with a person that has been shaped this way. And then they have problems when it comes to biblical intimacy. Well, of course they do. And so if you have if you have brought adverse shaping influences into the marriage that is a call for the husband or the wife to be aware of the kind of person that you married and then rather than complicating these pre-existing conditions with like say insensitivity in this case study that you nourish and that you cherish her 
and that you help her to mature and to grow out of these complicating problems. If there is unresolved bitterness or anger or frustration or guilt or disrespect or unforgiveness, hurts, malice, or insensitivity in any marriage, one or both partners will be hesitant to become completely naked, vulnerable, transparent, to thoroughly enjoy biblical sex. Now, you can interpret uh, completely naked as completely physically naked, but maybe even more importantly, completely spiritually naked. And that's why I added these two words, vulnerable and transparent, because that is a part of being spiritually naked. A person who wants to be vulnerable and transparent It will be hard, it will be nearly impossible for that to happen, for them to thoroughly enjoy biblical intimacy because they can't become completely spiritually naked, meaning vulnerable and transparent, because there is unresolved bitterness, anger, frustration, guilt, disrespect, unforgiveness, hurts, malice, or insensitivity, or perhaps something that you have added to the list. All of these descriptors here come from the previous slide. Now, there is a strong call here for the husband and wife to keep short accounts, that they be a confessional family, meaning that they are confessing their sins daily, by the hour if they need to, regularly, consistently, that you're cleaning up these messes. It is easy to become angry or to be insensitive in marriage. We all do that. And so it's not so much about doing that because that's what we do, but what it's really about, and my big point is that we don't let those things linger, that we clean up our messes. And if you are active, if you're an active repenter, that you are actively, intentionally cleaning up your messes, then none of these things will linger. None of these things will be unresolved, and you will be able to become completely spiritually naked, meaning you will be willing to be vulnerable and transparent so that you both can thoroughly enjoy biblical sex. Now, there are many texts in Scripture to speak to how we should communicate and and engage one another. One of the passages that I like for husbands particularly and one that I like to apply to myself, probably this would be my number one passage as my call to action for how I am supposed to treat my wife. Paul said this in 28, 29, and 30 of Ephesians 5, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Imagine that. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, a couple of things that I want to mention about this passage. One, the word nourish, it means to grow. And so a husband's job is to come alongside his wife and to supplement, complement, to help her to grow up into continual, ongoing, ever-increasing Christ-likeness. A husband's responsibility is to grow her, to help grow her. He is not the one that primarily grows her. God does that. It is her relationship, personal, unique relationship with the Lord, but a husband can help or he can hinder that. And so as far as his supplemental work to come alongside his wife, he is to help her to grow. 
go back to the case study that I mentioned earlier when I conjoin uh, shaping influences with insensitivity. Well, in that illustration, the husband is not growing his wife. He's actually retarding the growth. He is causing her to regress because he's not nourishing her with his insensitivity. And so the husband's responsibility is to grow her. The other one is to cherish, which means to warm her, to create an environment of grace that gives her the best opportunity to flourish. And so the first thing that I want to say about this text is that a husband has a wonderful responsibility here. There is a tremendous call to action to where he can participate in what God is doing in his wife's life. The second thing that I want to mention here is that I would not want any wife to read this passage and and to isolate it as though the rest of the Bible does not exist, meaning that you unhook yourself from any responsibility to love your husband, to respect him. In fact, you can apply all of this passage into your life as well. I mean, shouldn't you be coming alongside your husband to help him to grow and to mature into the man that he should be? Shouldn't you create an environment of grace to where uh, he can grow into that person that you want him to be? Well, of course you want to do that. And so we want to be careful that we don't pull out a passage of Scripture as though the rest of the Bible does not exist We don't want to take the position of a victim or as a person who is expecting the other person to do all the work in the marriage, and I am free, and I am free from any responsibility, and I'm just to receive, uh, in this case, what my husband should be doing to me. And so the second thing here is that even though I'm talking about this passage and speaking directly to men about their roles and responsibilities, wives have a similar role and responsibility In fact, we all have opportunities. And so with that in mind, I want to introduce you to some other scriptures that I'm sure you are familiar with. There are three of them, uh, specifically Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, where Jesus took the entire law in the Old Testament and he hung the entire law on these two hooks. Hook number one, first and foremost love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hook number two is to love others. This is our opportunity. And if we are interpreting Scripture correctly as it pertains to our marriages, then there is an other-centered flow that comes out of our hearts and toward the other person. Our responsibility is to love God and to love others most of all. I am the subject, love is the action, and love demands an object. And in God's economy, the object cannot be myself, meaning that love flows from me and circles back around to me. That's not how love works. In fact, that would not be love at all. That would be lust. And so the way love operates is that it flows from me 
and the action is going away from me, and it lands on the object, which is another person, and the two other people are God first and others second, as Jesus taught in Matthew 22. And then Paul basically just paraphrased what the Lord said with the two great commandments in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He said that we should esteem others more than ourselves. The opposite of self-esteem is other esteem, that we should count others more significant than ourselves. It is a powerful passage of Scripture that really mirrors or imitates what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22. And then a third passage of Scripture that speaks to the opportunity that we have with our spouse is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I will, in the next slide, show you that verse so that you can read it. But I will give a brief descriptor of what Paul is saying and what he is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. He's talking about other-centered authority to where your spouse has authority over your body. Here is what the passage says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. You see the action. It is flowing from the subject, the husband, to the object, his wife. And so the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And as I was saying earlier with the Ephesians passage, even though I was talking to the husband, that you don't want to pull a passage of Scripture out of the Bible and pretend that the rest of the Bible does not exist in this passage, as well as Matthew 22, I mentioned in the previous slide, and uh, Philippians chapter 2. Well, here we are in 1 Corinthians 7, where the wife also, he's using the word likewise. It is a conjunction where he is joining two thoughts. And so his first thought is husbands should give to his wife her conjugal th uh, rights. Conjunction likewise, joining one thought with the next, and the wife should do the same for her husband. The next sentence, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Conjunction, likewise, connecting two thoughts. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, it is important that when you look at this passage, that this passage can only work when it is perfectly balanced, meaning both husband and wife are committed to counting the other person more significant, Philippians 2, or loving God and loving the other person more than themselves in Matthew 22. If you do not hang this verse in perfect balance, then the chances of getting into an abusive relationship are pretty high. Because if one person is willing to give up their rights, to, to give up their bodies to their spouse, and the other person is not willing to do that, then the one who is not willing to do that is going to bring much damage and much harm to the marriage. And so this verse is a delicate verse in the sense that it has to be suspended with perfect balance to where both husband and wife are fully committed to give up themselves to the other person, and there is no other way to interpret this passage of Scripture. Here's a paraphrase. Intimacy is not primarily about me. It is for my spouse to enjoy. 
And if that statement is your mission statement, specifically through biblical intimacy, uh, well, then you're modeling 1 Corinthians 7, and you're setting yourself up to have a wonderful marriage as, as far as physical intimacy is concerned. Intimacy is not primarily about me. It's for my spouse to enjoy. If my spouse has a gospelized view of intimacy, meaning an other-centered view of intimacy, they'll think similarly, and they have to. The husband and wife must balance this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 perfectly equally. I do not want to pollute the gospel by turning sexual love into selfish pursuit, And here are two illustrations of how that happens, two of the more common illustrations of how the person turns sexual love into selfish pursuit. Porn is one of the worst manifestations of self-serving sex where a person is satisfying himself. This is the illustration of where love leaves me and circles back around and comes back to me. That's not how love operates. As, As I said what we're really talking about is lust. And so lust leaves my heart, and then it comes back and lands back on me. That is self-serving sex. And then masturbation is another form of the me-centered sex worldview. And there are many couples that really need to work through what I've been talking about for the past 15 minutes as it pertains to other-centered love That is the only way to enjoy biblical intimacy. Talking about obstacles, as you begin to unpack what may be going wrong dynamically in the marriage, it is important to understand that biblical intimacy is a symptom, not a cause. And so if there is a problem in the bedroom with biblical intimacy, what you want to do is you want to start backing out of the bedroom. You want to look outside the bedroom to see what is going on. Again, if there's something wrong with biblical intimacy, it is not what it should be. That is a symptom to a deeper problem. Let me give you an illustration to make the point. Let's suppose that a spouse uses harsh words, and it can be a husband or a wife, because both husbands and wives do this. I realize that some people could be following along in these slides here, and you get to this point, and I use an illustration of harsh words, and it's like, yeah, that's what men do. Well, men do do that, but women also do that as well. And so let's say that one of the spouses, whether it's a husband or a wife, uses harsh words. When a spouse does that, or when any human does that to another person, the temptation is to self-protect. The layers come on. The fig leaves come on. This is part of our Adamic fallenness. It's a defensive mechanism when someone uses harsh words. And so the layers come on. And I talked about running and hiding earlier when I laid out those six elements of that diagnostic of what it means to be fallen in Adam. Well, harsh words happen, layers come on, self-protective defensive measure, and then distance happens. And when I'm talking about distance happening, sure, you can separate physical, geographical distance. But before that happens, what ha- the type of distance I'm talking about 
is internal distance. And sometimes internal distance is the only distance that happens in the marriage. They are still in proximity of each other. They eat at the dinner table. They ride in the car together. They sit beside each other at the, the church meeting. They they do things in, in the yard. They can even walk around their subdivision together. But there is internal distance between them. So harsh words happen. Layers come on. Many couples live internally distant from one another, and that affects intimacy. And this is the case study that I'm using to make my point that if if intimacy is affected, then that is a symptom, not a cause. Therefore, you want to start backing out of the bedroom to see, well, what is the cause? What are the causes that's created a layering effect to where there is minimally, there is internal distance that is affecting our intimacy? Now, at this point, I want to take a a slight break, and I want to just insert another aspect, a common aspect, two common aspects, actually, that happen in marriage with obstacles, and I want to bring them in because they are common. Uh, they happen so often between husbands and wives, and before I finish this webinar and get to some opportunities that I, I trust that you will be willing to step into, I do want to mention uh, two other things uh, that that are common occurrences between a man and a woman. The first one is for men, and I'll, I'll give one for men and one for women, but the first one is uh, lust, that men are wired in Adam, men are wired to lust. In Adam, before the fall, men are wired to, to love, to love Eve well, uh, to pour themselves into Eve and to love her with with all of Adam's heart. But because of the fall, love does turn to lust. And when Adam looked at Eve, he loved what he saw. And God wired men that way. Unfortunately, love gets flipped on its head, and so our temptation is lust. And any, virtually any man, any man that's honest will tell you that that could easily be a temptation. I am not saying that every man is tempted that way. Many men have gained victory over this temptation, but it is a common temptation where men turn sexual pleasure onto themselves because they are tempted to love. And then when they do that, then is sin-distorted sex. And I mentioned two illustrations of that earlier with porn and, and masturbation. But as far as an obstacle in the relationship well, this is a big one, and I wanted to insert it here in the webinar. And then women, uh, they struggle with insecurity, generally speaking. Women struggle with vulnerability, and you can see that, and you can discern that in the hierarchy. You see, a husband's responsibility is to be the head of the home, the head of the family, to lead the family, and so he is in an authoritative position of leading as far as a hierarchy is concerned, and we all understand this, and we have hierarchies throughout life, everywhere, every context in life. We have principals at at schools and teachers at schools and, and students, and so you have a hierarchy there. You have civil authorities, and you have citizens, and you have employers and employees, and so hierarchy is not a foreign concept. Well, within the marriage, you have a hierarchy. You have the husband, the wife, and and the children. 
And that's the way that God has structured the marriage. But because of that, if you bring in the fallenness of Adam, well, then the temptation, just as love turns to lust because of the way the man is wired, made by God, well, then a woman made by God, but yet sin infiltrates and penetrates the fallenness of humanity, then her temptation because of the hierarchy is to struggle with vulnerability. And these are two common traits, uh, characteristics of fallen people. And for the woman, the insecurity part, submitting can be hard. Now, it is important that we have a conversation about this. You want to be honest about our temptations. A man needs to be honest about temptations to lust, and a woman needs to be honest about the temptations to insecurity and, and vulnerability because these are truly obstacles. And then when you take those two obstacles of, of lust and, and insecurity and go back to the origins, you go back to the beginning, I want to do a brief walkthrough of what it was like in the beginning and I want you to see yourself in your marriage, assuming that you're married, if you are married, if you're thinking about married, uh, getting married, then it's important for you also to think about this hierarchy of, of God, man, and the woman in the beginning and how it should be, and unfortunately, because of fallenness, how it's not always, uh, because we can really muck up a good thing. But back in the beginning, God made Adam for himself. Adam was made for God. And then within the hierarchy, God said in 2.18 that it's not good for man to be alone, so he made Eve for Adam. And that's very normal, very beautiful. We have a structure. And even though Adam and Eve are completely equal in God, no one has a leg up on the other. No one is better than the other. We're, they're completely equal in God. But again, two things can be true at the same time. There is equality, but yet then there is also structure and hierarchy. And so God made Adam for himself, and then he made Eve uh, for Adam, and everything was beautiful. And so when you think about Eve and put yourself in her shoes, and let's say that a man asks a woman to marry him, the man is asking the woman to follow him all the days of his life. Now, if I put myself in Eve's shoes, thinking about following someone all the days of his life and submitting to him, I would have a very important question that I would be asking him. And my question would be, will you give me what God gives you? God made you for himself. He made me for you. I'm okay living in that hierarchy. And yeah, I get it. I'm equal. I'm just as equal as you are in God. But when it comes to our marriage and the hierarchy as well, uh, I understand that. But in order for me to live in that hierarchy, will you give me what God gives you? And if the husband is willing to give to his wife what God gives to him, uh, then they are going to have an incredible, amazing marriage and biblical intimacy uh, will just be out of this world. Now, the question is, what is she really asking for? Will you give me what God gives you? What does God give Adam? 
Well, one of the things that God gives Adam is that he loves Adam endlessly. God is love, and he made Adam, and he loves Adam, and Adam was the recipient of God's love. And now God makes a woman, and he gives this woman to Adam. Well, Adam has a responsibility to give to the woman that he is leading to give to her what God gives him, and love would be at the top of the list. Well, there's something else that God gives Adam as well. God gave Adam a safe place to live and to flourish. Adam was not afraid. Adam was protected. Adam was cared for. And if you think about just the relationship of God and Adam, these two things are very evident. God loved Adam, and Adam was completely safe. And now God has given Eve to Adam, and she's asking, okay, I will follow you, but will you give me what he gives you? Meaning, will you love me, and will it be safe with you? These are two of the most vital points, two of the most vital things that a husband can do for his wife. By the way, it's two of the most vital things that a father can provide for his girls as well, and also for his sons too. But to provide an environment where his children feel the father's endless love and protective care. Now, if these things are happening, then the chances of dynamic biblical intimacy are pretty much assured. But sin inhibits intimacy. Sin gets in the way. And so Adam doesn't love her well, and she doesn't feel safe. Adam is lusting after other things, and she feels unsafe, so she doesn't feel his love and doesn't feel his protective care. Sin penetrates, infiltrates, inhibits intimacy, and ultimately sin is what happened in Genesis 3-7. Division became, came between the man and the woman. They started fighting amongst themselves, blaming, and they had all sorts of all sorts of issues. You cannot fake genuine love. If you love your spouse, your spouse will know it. That kind of love looks like the love of Christ. Let me wrap up this webinar by giving you a, I want to give you a template and I want to give you a series of questions for you to answer. The template uh, that I'm going to give you is the fruit of the Spirit. You know it well in Galatians 5. Because, I haven't said this yet, but Biblical intimacy is a, a, a three-person dynamic. Biblical intimacy, spiritual intimacy means spirit. The spirit is there. The, the two people are alive in God, and God is activated in their lives to where they are enjoying spiritual intimacy together. And so biblical intimacy is a God-centered dynamic between a man and a woman. And if you want to think about the Spirit of God activated in our lives, you would think of the fruit of the Spirit. And therefore, I want to take the nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit and ask you nine questions. And I want you to use these questions uh, to be able to diagnose and to conversate about what's going on in your, in your marriage, specifically with biblical intimacy. Love. Here's the question. Does your spouse see 
experience and feel your affectionate love. Now, this is a closed-ended question, so you can ask it a different way so that you can get into an open-ended conversation. How does your spouse see, experience, and feel your affectionate love? Or maybe you can let your spouse answer the question as they explain to you how they see, experience, and feel your affectionate love. Joy. Is your spouse affected by the joy that you have in the Lord? Joy is a contagion. And if you have the joy of the Lord, then it will affect those who are around you. Peace. Is your spouse affected by the peace you have in your soul? Peace, too, is a contagion. And if you have peace, well, think about in the bedroom or in biblical intimacy that your spouse feels your peace. They, the peace that you have just gives them a desire to want to be vulnerable and intimate with you. Patience. Is your spouse a regular recipient of your patience? Again, a closed-ended question. I realize that, but you can open it up and you can have a discussion about this, these wonderful elements of the fruit of the Spirit. Would your spouse characterize your actions and reactions as kind? Is your spouse a regular recipient of God's goodness through you? As God is working through you and pouring himself into your spouse, is your spouse receiving the goodness of God through you? Does your spouse find security in your faithfulness? That steady individual that you are, it creates a a secure environment where your spouse is willing to be vulnerable. Is your spouse relaxed around you and feels your gentle warmth? It ties back to Ephesians 5, that you nourish and cherish. To cherish means to warm. Self-control, does your spouse feel secure around you knowing God controls you? Now, you could take a screenshot of this slide, use these questions, turn them into open-ended questions so that you can discuss them. And then finally, a few more thoughts. It is important that you understand the dynamics of communication, fellowship, uh, community, how you talk to each other, how you interact with each other. I do have a one-hour webinar that you're. I would encourage you to, to watch. In fact, it would be a perfect thing to watch that ties into biblical intimacy because I talk about the value, the essentialness of koinonia, fellowship, participating together, participation, fellowship, communication. Those are all the same words that mean koinonia, how you communicate to each other, uh, is essential, and understanding the dynamics of communication uh, is a must. One of the things that another thing that you will need to do as well is to identify the shaping influences in your life. I gave an illustration earlier about shaping influences and the insensitive husband, and so you want to identify, especially those shaping influences that predate you ever meeting each other. You came into your relationship shaped by different things. What are they? Will you talk about them? And then it is important that husbands and wives feel each other's affection. Now, I realize we don't like the word feeling, but I inserted it here intentionally because we want our spouses to feel our affection, our appreciation for each other, and that will have a huge impact on what happens inside the bedroom. And to that point, 
Outside bedroom intimacy is critical. Holding hands, hugging, kissing, uh, talking to each other, communicating. Biblical intimacy in that sense is a 24-7 opportunity between a husband and a wife. I talked about active repentance, that a home should be a confessional home. But not just confessing sin, confessing sin, transacting forgiveness, having a plan to actively put off those things that debilitate lives and debilitate relationships. Are you active repenters? These are some of the things that you want to talk about and implement in your life. And then finally, growing the Spirit's fruit. And you can go back to the previous slide where you go through those questions that you're going to make open-ended questions so that you can discuss these things. The webinar is on biblical intimacy, and I do one. I want to make one final appeal. All of our resources are free, and if you've made it to this part of the webinar, you have benefited from it. You see the value of it, and I do want you to share the webinar. I want you to share the audio, or people can listen to it. They can also watch the entire slide presentation. But if you are in a place to where you can help us, then I want you to pray about and consider supporting this ministry. We give our resources away. We want people to have them. We made that commitment a long time ago, and we're trusting God that he will turn the appropriate hearts that they will want to give to this ministry. And so if you are able If you can make a one-time donation or be a regular recurring participant, a financial partner in our ministry, will you do that? Thank you so much for watching Physical Intimacy, Obstacles, Origins, and Opportunities. God bless. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.